Welcome back to the program. Technological change and creative destruction is everywhere. It's changed the way we work, the way we interact with each other, the foundations of education, and not surprisingly, the nature of warfare. You've all seen the media images of drones giving us perfect pictures, the perfect eye in the sky for perfectly targeted airstrikes. At least that's how it looks on Homeland and 24 and the images from Abbottabad. The reality, however, is somewhat different. Less than clear images, imperfect targeting that kills civilians, increasingly complex equipment, and lower and lower barriers to entry with respect to drones that will make them available to nations everywhere. Soon, surveillance or death from above will become as easy as the delivery of a package. It's a scary future, and one that my guest Andrew Coburn writes about in his new book, Kill Chain. Andrew Coburn is the Washington editor of Harper's, He's the author of many books and articles, including Rumsfeld. And it is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Coburn here to talk about Kill Chain, the rise of the high-tech assassins. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Great to have you here. Uh, Certainly the idea of wanting to automate warfare has been around a while. You talk in terms of uh, some history. We were trying to automate warfare even back in Vietnam. Absolutely. We had, uh, it was the first great effort in that direction, because as you you probably remember the big problem for the U.S. effort in war in Vietnam, or well, in South Vietnam, was that the North Vietnamese could, you know, could send were sending resupplies down the Ho Chi Minh Trail through the jungles of Laos. So a bunch of basic nuclear physicists, sort of eggheads, came up with this scheme that to seed the to cover the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the jungle, with uh, sensors that could smell people, could listen to people, sense their movements, uh, all the vehicles' movements, even smell them or in terms of smell the ammonia from their urine. Um, and this was going to, and then all these sensors would send signals back to a giant computer in a base in Thailand, which would then figure out, you know, exactly what this was. It was a North Vietnamese supply column and send planes and even drones to, um, to uh, demolish them. But the trouble was, like a lot of all this automated high-technology warfare business, it didn't work because, first of all, the enemy figured out what was going on and started, uh, you know, taking countermeasures. Like they would run, they would send a, some trucks to sort of run up and down a, a road to nowhere, miles away, to fool the computer, or they would hang, you know, sort of they would fool the sniffers by uh, hanging the relevant material, you know, in trees hundreds of miles away. And it turned out that this multi-billion dollar effort couldn't even fail to spot an entire army that made its way down for an offensive uh, in 1972, after which they, the uh, U.S., the Air Force, kind of gave up and uh, folded the thing. And the next big effort, really, where drones were used with some consistency and even some would argue some success, although it had problems, was in the Balkans. Talk a little about that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's always hailed as the birth of the drone, the drone age. Um, in fact, the early efforts in the mid-'90s, I mean, the drones kept crashing, and uh, um, in fact, most of the time they couldn't fly at all because they... Drones have a real problem with bad weather um, because they're very aerodynamically unstable. I mean, they're like, I mean, the Predator drone, which is the one most people are familiar with, is it's really a sort of powered glider um, with sort of long, thin wings, which means it can stay in the air for a long time, which is you know one of the main selling points. 
but it's highly unstable and you know crashes very uh, very easily. In fact, half of all the predators ever built have crashed. So um, the but so that, but then in Kos in the Kosovo War in '99. Again, it was like a big, you know, big deal. Ah, last week and have this wonderful sort of bird's eye view of the, of the battlefield at all times. In fact, as I described in Kilchain, the the overall the NATO commander, General Wesley Clark, he became completely hypnotized by drone pictures, and he'd spent hours. People who worked with him have told me this. He'd spent hours in his office in his headquarters when he was you know, meant to be running a war, looking at drone, you know, pictures from a drone flying over Kosovo, and he actually, on at least one occasion, he rang up the air commander, who was a freestyle general, uh, Mike Short, and said, hey, Mike, when are you gonna, what are you going to do about those two tanks at the end of that bridge I'm seeing on the, seeing in the picture on my, <laughs> on, my, on my Predator feed? You know, so it was, it was absurd, really, that they, you know, they were so sort of exciting to be able to watch a drone picture that they, you know, that it just gave this microscopic view of the battlefield and as it turned out pretty misleading so you know that was it's hailed as the birth of drone warfare but in fact there were some pretty strong warning signs even at that time what it also did is it really gave us a different way of looking at what was referred to as high value targets particularly those marked for assassination including Slobodan Milosevic, who was targeted at various points in, in Kosovo. That's right. I mean, this idea, I mean, I talk a, little, a lot about this in Kill Chain, this whole idea of, you know, you can solve all your problems by removing a critical node from the enemy system. And originally it was like things like bridges or, you know, power station or something. And then really um certainly by the uh, certainly by the first gulf war and a lot more during the balkan war um it became people and they really i mean this has never been officially admitted but i know from people who were involved in the targeting that slobodan milosevic the serbian leader during the kosovo war he was a target they thought if we get rid of slobo you know all our <laughs> our problems will be solved and so they they bombed his house and they uh uh, you know, they were trying to find out his whereabouts at any particular time. That's when they've had the first set up the high-value targeting cells in the in the Pentagon and CIA and other intelligence agencies, which whose specific job was to follow people, um, you know, to draw up, you know, the targeting information on people, specific leaders, so you could get them. And that's now become a huge... There are now thousands of people involved in this. And that's why... I call, I can call them the high-tech assassins. And of course, 9/11 gave birth to a whole new industry with respect to drones and targeting both of, of people and geography, beginning with Osama bin Laden. Well, that's right. In fact, they'd the thing that really gave us the armed drone. I mean, the you know the, the missile-firing drone was uh, they were flying the CIA in in 2000. The CIA was flying. Um, unarmed predators across uh, Afghanistan. And they were looking for Osama bin Laden even then, because they actually did know he was a threat. Um, and at a place he was known to frequent, a place called Tarnak Farms, they, the drone came back with pictures of which all you could see, and this is so much for the, you know, the, as you mentioned at the beginning, the 24 or homeland images. All they could see were a little white dot surrounded by black dots moving down a street. And to, you know, this was a place that Osama might be, ergo, 
the white dot was Osama, and the black dots were his bodyguard. I even heard analysts talking about how these the, the black dots were being deferential to the white dot. And the, actually, when you blew up, I've seen blown up um, you know, versions of these pictures, and you know they just become blurry. So there was no way you could tell whether anyone was being deferential or not. Um, and but they said, "Oh my God! If we'd only had a missile on that drone, we could have taken out Osama bin Laden. You know, our problems would be solved." So then there was a crash program to arm the predator, which they did actually very quickly, and we were off to the races. So, as you say, come 9/11, you know, Bush had a list on his, a list he kept in his desk drawer in the Oval Office of the top. You know, became the first first was the top seven, then it was the top twelve, then it was the top twenty high-value targets, Al-Qaeda targets, and each time they killed one or they announced that they'd killed them or had really killed them this time because often they said they'd killed them and they hadn't, he'd cross, he'd cross off a name. But the trouble is that it didn't solve, it doesn't solve the problem because there's always a new guy and we've now killed thousands and thousands and thousands of high-value targets. And, you know, what, what are we doing? We're still fighting that war on terror. One of the other things that it did is it gave birth or expanded this idea that you talk about in the title of a, of a kill chain, the idea that when one of these targets was spotted, that there was a process that would go on as to who right. gave the orders for this to happen. And part of that was based on the number of civilians that might be casualties. Well, right. That was in the, in the particularly in the invasion of Iraq. They... Um you know, they did. They clear. They whatever they said to the rest of us. They knew themselves that they were killing or going to kill a lot of civilians, particularly in the hunt for us for Saddam Hussein. I mean, there was a very intense effort. Uh, you know, with a its own high targeting cell, high value targeting cell, to find Saddam and to kill him. And in fact, that's how the invasion started. They sent. Uh, they attacked a comma farm compound south of ba- on the edge of Baghdad, which he was reported to be hiding with his family in a bunker, with his sons in a bunker. And so they uh, they t- targeted that. They killed a lot of people, but they didn't kill Saddam because he wasn't there. And in fact, there wasn't a bunker. Like, you know, the intelligence, intelligence on these things is often very squishy. Anyway, so the real edict came down. Once people stood on the spot, started to point out that they were killing a lot of civilians, there was a rule put in place that if you thought your strike was going to kill 29 or fewer, I mean, collateral damage, in collateral damage, then that was okay. You could just go ahead. But if it was 30 or more, then you had to ask permission. Can we kill 30 or more people? And the actually, the question went up to um, Donald Rumsfeld himself, uh, who would <laughs> give the, who was, you know, had to give the sign off on this. But that was okay because he actually never said no. <laughs> it was always okay to go ahead. So, you know, it's this macabre kind of arithmetic. You know, 29, okay. 30, not okay. The, well, I have to take a little, ask, you know, ask permission. Then it's okay. One of the other aspects of this is this whole idea of a kill chain gave rise to a whole bureaucracy involved in these drone in this drone program and one of the objects and it's the irony in it i suppose the bureaucracy kept getting bigger and the desire to shorten the time involved in the kill chain they always wanted to make that smaller that's right i mean the um the kill chain i mean for the bombing attacks those uh, those attacks on uh, saddam in baghdad i just mentioned the kill chain was about 40 sometimes 45 minutes 
and you know it took that long to sort of process the intelligence you know to to you know to get the bomber on station to you know spin up you know to to launch the attack um from the from the moment the decision okay he's there we're going to get him so the great attraction supposedly of drones is you have the drone and it's looking at a whatever it might be you know a a farmhouse in Pakistan and they see what they say think is uh, you know is Mr Big the high value target and bang you launch the missile and you so you have a kill chain of seconds but it never works you know it does work sometimes but as you know so often you get the wrong person or he's not there or you know whatever to implement all this as you say as i talk about it in kill in the book kill chain they uh, there's this huge bureaucracy. It's now called, or it's been called, the disposition matrix, which is kind of a creepy bureaucratic term. Um, so before the final list goes to the president, who rather bizarrely likes to reserve for himself the decision on, you know, whether to kill a specific person, um, you know, there's a there's a sort of bureaucracy. There's a sort of big video meeting of a, around 100 people from various intelligence agencies who decide. Below that, there's all the National Counterintelligence Center. That is involved. That's part of the disposition matrix. And below that, you have the CIA, you have the Counterterrorism Center, where targeting, or ta- uh, i.e. targeting people, is now a whole career track on its own. You can spend your entire time at the CIA your entire career until you retire targeting people. In other words, you know, facilitating, well, to be, um, if you want to be use the polite term, targeted killing or, you know, what most people used to call assassinations. And uh, so, you know, so now we have this huge bureaucratic interest in keeping this whole thing going. Talk a little bit about the ways in which these drone strikes have been part of the counterinsurgency effort, even some of the stuff that David Petraeus was talking about. Yes, well, I mean, the counter, counterinsurgency, or COIN, as they like to call it, that you know, General Petraeus you know, made his name with, um, was the whole idea that you sort of don't go out and whack the whole population. You try and get the bulk of the population on your side by, I don't know, being nice and digging wells and, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, as I say, attempting to win over the uncommitted part of the population. But side by side, if you look at the coin manual that Petraeus takes credit for, um, you'll see that actually targeting enemy leaders is part of that. Um, So the whole idea was that you could, I mean, which was pursued in, Certainly in Iraq and in Afghanistan, they put huge efforts into targeting insurgent leaders. And this is all, it's still accepted as a given uh, that this works, you know, that it's a really good thing to, uh, your situation is much improved if you've taken out an insurgent leader. Only rarely has it been challenged, most sort of, most uh, in most detail by a, uh, a guy I talk a lot about in, in the book Kill Chain, a um, guy called Rex Ravallo, who was a very brilliant analyst, uh, who in 2000, you know, who'd worked on, he was a fighter pilot in Vietnam originally, um, but then he'd worked for the Defense Department on and off in a number of sensitive positions. And in 2007, he was sent to Baghdad as part of a very secret, powerful little intelligence cell that was attached to the office of the Ground Commander, um, General Odierno, 
and Rex decided to find out if this high-value targeting really worked. So, you know, did what, what effect did it have? You know, did it help us win the war or not? So he took a list of 200 people, insurgent leaders who'd been killed in, in recent months, and then he looked to see what happened afterwards in their area of operations. You know, usually they'd be operating in an area of about five kilometers around. It was five to ten kilometers, certainly in the urban areas. And um, then, you know, what happened? You kill the guy. Does, it do, does life become more peaceful? Well, no, it didn't. He, you know, over 200 cases, he found that within three days, attacks on Americans were up by 40%. And within five days, they were still up, running 20% up, and they sort of went back to normal, which was still a high level in the days and weeks afterwards. So, you know, as he told Odiono, he said, this is entirely counterproductive, and we should change our strategy, which was, you know, this was the strategy. But, of course, nothing happened because of what I mentioned earlier. There was too much bureaucratic weight, uh, not to mention money, behind all this. The other aspect of this is not only did it not have an impact in taking out some of these targets, but the blowback from it in terms of civilian death was something that made the situation in many cases worse. And you talk about some examples of that. Well, right. I mean, it's um, I talk about a lot in Kill Chain about um, in Pakistan and in Yemen, uh, where I mean, the two countries that we've principally... Um, I mean, apart from Afghanistan and Iraq, where we were actually officially at war, um, in Pakistan and Yemen, where we were supposedly not at war, um, you know, it's had huge blowback in uh, people, you know, you know, in those places, people just want to be left alone. And, they, uh, you know, in those countries where people are in any way very poor and trying to sort of get by is basically the main in- interest in life. And then suddenly to have these, you know, these... To them, it seems almost random. I mean, it's you know they all know you know okay, well that guy was a bad guy and you got him. But then they you know what draws their attention is the collateral damage. You know the the uh, you know which have been very considerable numbers. I mean in in Pakistan, for instance, I think there are sixteen hundred people we've killed. But we don't even know the names. I mean, so far from them being you know named enemy leaders, which is what people think we're doing, we don't even know who we killed. Um, some of them may have been fighters. Some of them may not. Some of them clearly were not. And you know, we have many documented cases of children. Of, I mean, I'm thinking particularly it wasn't people. Well, so it was a Pakistani family in the tribal areas, and their granny, the children's granny. They talked about this in Congress, that their granny had been killed by a drone while she was out collecting firewood. Now, if you read, if you read my book, you'll know that. You'll understand that someone holding a piece of, you know, a stick or a piece of wood from what the, from under a lot of conditions that drones operate under, like the altitude they're at and the weather, that can look exactly like someone, a human being, holding a gun. I mean, it's a judgment call. Um, in fact, you know, I quoted in the first chapter of the book when I talk about a, a particular, I describe in detail a particular drone strike because I've got all the all the radio conversations that went on among the drone pilots, um, the, one of the people involved says, hey, I can never tell, you know, I, I, the only way I can be able to see a rifle is if they move them around when they're holding them with their muzzle flashes or when they're flinging them across their soldiers. In other words, you can't tell. So this old woman was collecting firewood. Someone thought, oh, that's a person with a gun. 
and blew them away with a drone. The children, when they were talking about this, they said, about their lives, they said, well, you know, now we don't, we know never to play outside when it's a sunny day because the drone can see us. So, I mean, think about that. I mean, you know, quite apart from all the blood and death and everything, just altering the behavior of a whole of children who can't play, who are afraid to play outside anymore. Within the drone program itself, is there a distinction made between drones that are being used for surveillance and those that are being used for killing? Well, yes, we have. I mean, there's some drones, the majority of drones can be used for both. I mean, there's the predators and reapers. I mean, those are the ones most sort of, they're in the front lines, if you like. But, you know, there there are so many other kinds of drones. I mean, I talk particularly about the sort of mega drone, the Global Hawk, um, which is a huge surveillance drone that can supposedly stay up for sort of days on end. Um, it's a sort of massive object, and it's supposedly stealthy, so it can't be seen on radar. And that's, um, you know, they use it in the Pacific, or they use it to sort of try and surveil North, uh, North Korea. And... Um, not surprisingly, it's very expensive. In fact, it's um, the last time I checked, the cost per per Global Hawk was over two hundred million dollars, um, something around two hundred twenty, two hundred, I think, in two, from memory, two hundred twenty million dollars, which is a lot for a plane that doesn't even have to carry people. And in fact, the thing is, it doesn't even fly very often because it, you know, it, it like a lot of these machines, is very susceptible to bad weather because it can't. For little sudden, difficult to explain uh, um, quickly, it can't really it has to stay away from thunderstorms or mm-hmm. from you know sort of uh, you know from particular bad weather because it can't see enough to sort of it finds it hard to fly around them. Um, and there's other things wrong with it, you know, bits fall off. In fact, a senior Pentagon acquisition official, we were talking about this, and he said he said the. The Northrop Corporation took billions and billions of dollars off us for the Global Hawkins, a piece of junk. I said, junk? And he said, yeah, junk. It's just junk. So that's what we're being, you know, that's a very important point to remember about this whole drone business. And we talk about the moral issue, you know, civilians being killed. And, you know, does it, you know, does it a warped view of warfare, which it is, really. Uh, but the thing, the most important fundamental point is money. This is all about money and the people who are the people who either you know in business or in private life or in business or in the services you know are profiting bureaucratically or corporately. The other question is that as most technology gets cheaper over time, some of these earlier drones certainly will also get cheaper to reproduce, and there's a real danger in terms of the proliferation of drones throughout the world. Sure, everyone, they're so fashionable now. Everyone wants a drone. Um, I mean, you know, as, I, as you may have sensed in the way I'm talking, I think they're a, a lot less effective than, than advertised. Um, you know, I think some of these countries that are being sold, you know, what are becoming quite expensive drones. Um, you know, just a few weeks ago, the administration basically lifted the you know, sort of various bars on, you know, exporting uh, Reaper drones, uh, Predator drones, uh, so before, I think it was only the British who were allowed to buy them. Now, I think the Dutch are buying them. The various uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates are buying them, and probably other people too. The thing is, you know, that they 
You know, I think they may be a little disappointed. I mean, I'll give you one example, not from an overseas sir, but um, a few years ago, the drone lobby, which is getting quite potent, um, got the Congress to buy a number of Reaper drones for the Border Patrol. And it was built as, it'll be great, we can spot, uh, you know, undocumented aliens, uh, immigrants uh, crossing the border, you know, or drug smugglers. So they went on patrol, and sure enough, they did. They captured, and they were able, you know, they were able to spot and lead to the, cause the capture of uh, a great number of um, of uh, people crossing the border illegally. Um, I think it was from slightly from memory, it was around five thousand people. They call, but some rather subversive official of the border patrol decided to try a little experiment, and he uh, acquired or rented or. Uh, uh, a light Cessna plane, a two-man little light airplane, you know, enough room for two people. And it was sent up with a um, with a pilot and someone sitting beside him with a pair of binoculars and with an infrared scope for spotting people at night. And whereas the multi-million-dollar Reaper had the Reaper had ca- captured um, some around five thousand people. The Cessna capture, and the, the, but each capture by the safety worked out the money that was at about uh, that cost like seven thousand dollars each. So seven thousand dollars to capture one Mexican, sort of making his way across the border. Uh, the Cessna uh, captured over seven thousand people at a cost of around two hundred and thirty dollars each. So it was clearly a much better deal. So the result was uh, obvious. They they never used it. They quickly stood down the Cessna and they bought more Reapers. So it's going back to the money. So in question about, I think, you know, everyone wants a drone. It's thought to be wonderfully effective. And I'm sure General Atomics, who makes a lot of them, will make a great deal of money out of exporting them. (laughs) I think they may may be disappointed. The other thing is, however, as we've seen in recent cases, people flying drones over Paris, or, you know, just fairly recently, someone uh, flew a drone over the White House and it hit a tree eventually. You know, just the technology of these little ones, provided um, you're not trying to use them to surveil, you know, vast areas, is quite dangerous. Um, you know, imagine if that had, had a high, the one over the White House had had a high explosive strapped to it. That, uh, you know, that is obviously very worrying. And, of course, the other part of it is that the technology will keep improving and the danger from these will continue to increase. Well, it will. I mean, it's um, part of the thing is them becoming cheap. Um, the danger, I'd say the danger, yes, I mean, the danger of them, I'm more scared of them, you know, thinking about them when I'm flying into, you know, National Airport here in D.C. Um, because, you know, the... What, where the technology is really improving is in these sort of little domestic drones that mm-hmm. you know anyone can buy. You can get them on Amazon or anywhere else, and uh, you know, and, and be flying. You know, them do. They're not that hard to uh, to control. They're very easy to control, in fact. And they're those ones with four little rotors. Uh, you know, it's a quadricopter. Actually, are very aerodynamically stable. They, so they uh, they fly very well. So that technology has certainly improved. So that danger has improved. In terms of, you know, going back to the sort of whole idea of fighting wars with drones, I think, you know, that's going to lead to real problems. But, 
both technological problems and, um, you know, if someone decides to let loose a drone that makes its own decisions on who to kill or not, that's, a, that's obviously going to be a big problem. But it's particularly going to be a problem to the taxpayer because, you know, we now mentioned the $200 million drone. We've also got a $300 million drone, which is a classified uh, CIA drone, and I'm sure we're heading for the half-billion-dollar drone anytime soon. Andrew Coburn, the book is Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Hey, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you.